Good morning. Just making sure that it's working. Reading from Luke 24, 1 to 12, from the English Standard Version. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home, marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Val. Have you ever gotten news that was just too good to be true? Just this last week, we were given not one, but two bikes showed up right in our driveway. One that was Miriam-sized, that's my wife if you're visiting today, and one that was Nora-sized, that that's my five-year-old. We couldn't believe it. It was an amazing blessing from the hands of two of our members. You know who you are, and we're really grateful for that. If anyone has a Josh-sized bike or car or boat, they're looking to unload on Totally Game. But today we're going to tackle something that is almost too good to be true. If it is true, then it is the single most important event in the history of the world. Whether you know it or not, the meaning of your life hinges on your response to this fact. If what we hear today is fake news, well then we've wasted our time. And we have wasted our money and emotion on a lie. So here's the question at stake. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Christianity is a sham if he did not. Here's today's big idea, and you can follow along on that sheet on the, on the sermon page there. The big idea that kind of encapsulates where we're headed today. Jesus' resurrection changes everything for everyone. Whether you're in this parking lot, or in the houses next door, or on the other side of the planet, Jesus' resurrection changes everything for everyone. And we're going to support this claim with three points. If you're a clock watcher, the first one's a little bit longer than the last two. So, so hang on if you're getting nervous at the end of the first. Jesus' Jesus's arrest was late, late, late on a Thursday night. And he was brutally murdered on a Friday afternoon and evening. And then Saturday, like yesterday, was passed over in silence. And then Luke 24, what Mel just read for us, ushers us into the dawn of Sunday morning. And Luke tells us that this group of women get up early to tend to Jesus' body per the Jewish custom. And so they're bringing spices in order to preserve his body so it doesn't dis- uh, decay as quickly. 
So grief and loss still weighing heavily on their hearts, they step into the twilight of this garden where Jesus has been laid to rest, and they make their way quietly toward the tomb. How does Luke stir up faith of Christians and skeptics alike in this short scene? Remember, he wrote that you might have certainty. The first thing this morning that we'll see is an empty tomb. I don't know how familiar you are with Christianity, but it may surprise you to find out that none of Jesus' followers expected that Jesus would rise from the dead. They were not predisposed to the resurrection. The whole reason these women were going back to Jesus' tomb was to finish the work of preparing his body for burial because there was no expectation that he's going to be walking up out of that grave. They didn't think that. So I just say that to say that this wasn't a ruse. They really thought that Jesus was really dead. So one subtle point that Luke is making here is that Jesus had really died. These women had seen his real dead body. They'd seen it laid in the tomb. So Jesus wasn't fake dead. There would be no miracle max on scene, declaring Jesus only mostly dead and telling the disciples that mostly dead is slightly alive. Does anybody know who Miracle Max is? All four of you raising your hands. It's the Princess Bride. If you haven't seen it in a while, go back and go back and watch it. It's classic. No Miracle Max on scene. There's a big difference between between being mostly dead and all dead, and Jesus was all dead, and Luke is making that point. I only make this point this morning because throughout history, people have tried to explain away the empty tomb by arguing that Jesus wasn't fully dead, but instead almost dead, and made a miraculous recovery during his downtime in the tomb. There's more than enough evidence to demonstrate that Jesus truly died. And as the women walked through the garden on that morning, the first hint that something was off is that the stone had been rolled away from the mouth of the tomb. Their hearts would have skipped a beat, not in joy. Again, resurrection is is not on their minds at all. Their hearts would have skipped a beat in panic because someone had stolen the body, which, believe it or not, was not all that uncommon in that day. But there's these two angels sitting there, and they somewhat humorously ask them why they're looking for the living in a graveyard. They say in verse 6, he's not here, but he's risen. They say, don't you remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Well, that little reminder was enough to jog their memories. And they remember all the times that Jesus had sort of hinted at his death while he was still living and walking with them. And they remembered that he was hinting at the fact that resurrection was his divine destiny. So they run back. They're full of faith at this point. They run back to tell the disciples all that they had seen and heard. And the disciples, they basically just disregard everything that the women tell them. It's kind of comical if you look at uh, toward the end of your text there in verse 11. It says, but these words seem to them an idle tale or like pure nonsense to them. And they did not believe them. Now, I think we should give these guys the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure they were tired. They're probably super exhausted from the drama of the last few days. And just hoping against hope that the horror of the past few days wasn't getting worse. That Jesus' body, their good friend that his body has not been stolen because the only logical conclusion that they were drawing is that the body had been stolen. If we're 
honest with ourselves, it's a little bit difficult of a claim for us to believe, too. I can imagine being one of those disciples and struggling to believe as well. There are many who have been critical of the Bible, like the late skeptic and atheist Christopher Hitchens. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, a very famous atheist. He once asked an audience to imagine striking up a conversation with somebody on a bus. And this person on the bus nonchalantly remarks, you know, I used to be a dead person, but I'm alive now. Hitchens quips that the most reasonable response to a statement like this would have not been belief, but relocation to another seat on the bus, right? Who could blame them? I mean, I bet if I heard this claim on a bus, I'd be getting up to sit in another seat as well. I wouldn't believe them. So why should we, be, why should we believe Luke this morning? Then there are those, unlike Hitchens, who are a little bit less flag uh, flagrantly antithetical to Jesus, yet still they find the credibility of an empty tomb too difficult of a pill to swallow. Maybe that's you. Maybe you find the credibility of an empty tomb too difficult a pill to swallow. I was discussing the real bodily resurrection of Jesus with a neighbor one time. He thought of himself as super religious, maybe like some of you today. He probably even considered himself a Christian. He likes Jesus, at least, at least he thinks he likes Jesus, but he believes the resurrection to be a spiritual reality, like a, a symbol, as it were, of Jesus' ongoing presence and influence in the world. But the resurre resurrection was not a bodily, physical, historical reality. The actual physical empty tomb is like take it or leave it for him. He could, you know, go one way or the other. What's important about the empty tomb, he told me, is its spiritual significance, the spiritual significance that you take from it as, as a human being. Whether it's true or not that Jesus rose from the dead, nah, to him it didn't really matter one way or the other. But he was so wrong. One of the New Testament writers, his name was Paul, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul is saying, as someone else has said, that the tomb was merely a borrowed bed for the weekend. And the not-so-subtle point that Luke is making here is that the resurrection is a historical reality. And so I want to give you three quick reasons to consider that the resurrection was an actual historical event. So that, as Luke says, we might have certainty about the resurrection. So first, if you're following along on the sheet there, consider the original eyewitnesses. This woman named Mary Magdalene was the first to meet the resurrected Christ in that garden. She was once a demon-possessed prostitute. This was who Jesus decided to reveal himself to first? This is huge, because if these stories were fabricated or manipulated, none of the gospel writers would have chosen to include this detail. Why? Because unfortunately, women were not valued or looked highly upon in this society at all. So you think that America is bad. Uh, a woman's testimony during this time would not even hold up in a court of law. So if the gospel writers wanted to make a persuasive argument, they certainly would not have included this detail of a woman being the first and primary support eyewitness. Instead, the, the original eyewitness for them would have been a man if they were just making up the story, but it wasn't. And so remarkably, we find Jesus debuting his resurrection body to the most broken of disciples, a demonized prostitute, and to the most unlikely of recipients, 
at least in that culture, a woman. The unflattering original eyewitnesses in Luke's account lend credence to the resurrection story. But also, second, consider the unflattering honesty of the gospel writers. In his 1950 essay, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He was talking about how unlikely it would be for the Jews to invent a God-man, which is what, what is happening in the Gospels, right? Jews arguing that Jesus is the God-man. He says this is difficult because his followers, Jesus' followers, were all Jews. This quote is on your sheet if you, if you want to follow along. This is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to the nation, which of all others was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another. It is very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even of the New Testament writers embraced the doctrine all that easily. So his, his point is this. In order for these very monotheistic, one-God Jews to have embraced Jesus as Messiah, something absolutely incredible must have happened. And to add to C.S. Lewis, if I may, this morning, the Bible is not at all glamorous in its depictions of, or descriptions of its central characters and their understanding of who Jesus was. The remarkable honesty that the gospel writers exhibit is another reason to believe the resurrection claims. It would have been humiliating to pen the words that the gospel writers penned. Mary didn't expect this, Jesus' closest friends didn't expect this. The disciples, they were like really poor followers of their master. If this whole charade was just a clever ruse, why would they make themselves look so foolish and so unbelieving in all of the accounts that they tell? Why make Thomas look so doubtful? Why parade the disciples around like bumbling morons who can't even understand the plain evidence right in front of their noses? Also, Consider the authority's inability to produce a body. Consider their inability to produce the body. One of the most stubborn historical facts is that the enemies of Jesus could not produce his dead body. The quickest way to discredit the new Jesus movement would have been to produce evidence, physical evidence, that Jesus was still dead. That would have obliterated early Christianity in its infant stages. The Romans knew this instinctively, which is why they stationed a whole bunch of guards outside of Jesus' tomb. And still his body was gone, and still they couldn't produce it. This was not a grave robbery. The Jewish and Roman authorities had all of the resources and motivation to track down the body. They wanted to badly. It would have dealt the fatal blow to the resurrection claims. Finding Jesus' body would have dealt the fatal blow to the whole debate. But there was no dead body because Jesus was raised. So Luke, remember, is answering this question for us. How can we be certain about our faith in this unbelievable event? And his first answer is an empty tomb. But it's not the only reason. What else, what other evidence does Luke have for us to stir up faith in both believers and unbelievers, whatever camp you're in this morning? Second thing, a persuaded skeptic. You can imagine the disciples hanging out in that house. They're still grieving over the death of their friend. You can imagine the courtesy nods that the disciples granted to these women 
right after they told them about their experience back at the tomb. Right. Right. Hey, guys, Mary's been out partying again. Verse 11 says, These words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter, he wants to see it for himself. So he went to the tomb, saw that it was empty, and then the text says he went home marveling at what had happened. Whether or not Peter fully and finally believed here in this scene, the empty tomb was clearly raising some really important questions for him. Was this just an empty hole in the side of a hill, or was something absolutely unique going on here? So I want to ask you this morning, have you actually invested the claims of Jesus for yourself? I want to challenge both lifelong Christians and lifelong skeptics in this moment. Have you just accepted these teachings because it's what you've always been taught? Or on the other hand, have you rejected them without actually really grappling with the evidence? Neither of these responses is sufficient. Can I encourage you to investigate the claims for yourself sometime this afternoon? Just like Peter, you might find yourself marveling. We've seen an empty tomb. We've encountered skeptics turned to believers. And then finally this morning... Let's look at an undeniable transformation. In this chapter alone, there are 12 witnesses to the risen Christ, Mary and the 11 disciples. And each of them is utterly transformed by their experience with Jesus. Countless men and women transformed from being a group of weak, dispirited followers into the courageous core of the first century church. Fearful, betraying Peter, Violently is violently crucified upside down for following Jesus years later. Would someone go to that length to propagate a lie? It's very doubtful. If he hadn't actually seen the living Christ, would he really be willing to die for some fairy tale that he and his buddies had cooked up in their home to create a religious movement? Legend has it that not many weeks after this, skeptical doubting Thomas was imprisoned and flogged for boldly proclaiming the risen Christ. Are these the actions of scam artists? Or are these the actions of those who have been radically transformed by seeing something absolutely life-changing? A dead man walking. Other credible witnesses, uh, credible eyewitness accounts are laced throughout the Gospels and later letters in the New Testament, and they just had no incentive to lie about their experience. But maybe you're still a skeptic this morning. Maybe the voice inside your heart isn't ready to lend credence to this evidence quite yet. These were insiders, you say. These were folks who stood to gain something by advancing the Jesus narrative. But that's not true. In fact, they had a great deal to lose by continuing to propagate the empty tomb. Many, if not most, were ready to die rather than renounce their testimony. Why would they fake a resurrection and then go out and die for their lie. It doesn't make any sense. The combined strength of all of these eyewitnesses to the resurrection is quite remarkable. This isn't just a couple of Jesus' closest confidants and disciples trying to salvage their their master's reputation and see how far they could advance this clever ruse. No, hundreds of people from diverse backgrounds, most of whom were initially skeptical and many of whom were very hostile towards this news, towards Jesus, They claim to have met Jesus after his resurrection. And it's unreasonable to think that 
all of them were lying, and or all of them were deceived. And beyond the number of witnesses was the incredible transformation that those witnesses who saw Jesus alive, their incredible transformation. They each had transformative experiences with the risen Christ. Many of you here today, you can give testimony to the radical transformation that you've undergone, undergone since Jesus invaded your life. We were hopelessly buried underneath the shame of our own wasted lives, convoluted motives, sometimes our deviant, dark desires. We were dead in our sins. We might as well have been in that tomb with Jesus. But when Jesus rose up out of that grave, when he called us out of our tombs, we got up and we ran out of the grave with him. You can give testimony to that. Death is dead for you. Sin is finished for you, and we are free because it is finished for us because Jesus finished it for us. So please, Trinity, don't act like you've still got work to do to make the Father love you. You don't. All of that is done. And it was done when Jesus walked out of the grave alive, leaving behind an empty tomb. In summary, it is in part the combined weight of this evidence. An empty tomb persuaded skeptics, and the radical transformation of his followers. It is this evidence that has led millions throughout history to believe that Jesus really did rise. And if he really did rise, then he really is God. Hear this, skeptic. If he really did rise, then he really is God. And he is the king, and you ought to embrace him as such. He'll return the embrace. And so as we wrap, I'd just like to address once again the two different groups represented here today. Earlier I said that the gospel changes everything for everyone. The resurrection changes everything for everyone. But there's no escaping the implications of this mon monumental event for any of us today. If you're visiting today and you're just straight up doubtful, we want you to know that Trinity is a safe place to bring your doubts. We often say around here that this is a place where it's okay to not be okay. Bring your skepticism. Let's have meaningful dialogue about this. Bring your brokenness and your darkness. Trust me, you will fit right in. You don't have to hide your concerns. I'm going to let you in on a little secret if you're visiting. We are all just as broken as you are. We've all got stuff that is hidden that we're all seeking courage to bring out into the light of God's word and with God's people. We are all wrecks who have found wholeness in Jesus. Here's a deeper secret. I only ironed the front of my shirt and my collar this morning. The sleeves and the back are a total wreck and a total mess. We are wrecks, and we have found robes that are white and spotless and wrinkle-free, and we have put them on, Jesus' perfectly righteous robes. So don't hide. Your sin can be covered by the righteousness of Jesus. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus hung on that cross, and while he was hanging there, he was fixing a problem. He was not just a recipient of death. He was doing something. He was active in his death. And it was not a small problem that he was fixing. We all, every last one of us, is born underneath the wrath of God. You know this instinctively, even if you haven't thought about it in a while. You're not the person that you should be. Your mind wanders to dark places. You want bad stuff. You do bad stuff sometimes. That sense that you're not who you should be 
Where does that come from? Like, who puts that feeling inside of you? What is the source of those feelings? The feeling of, oh, I should not have done that. The source of that feeling comes from the fact that you were created. And as a creation, you owe allegiance to your creator. We've offended God with our pride, with our self-sufficiency, with our partiality, with our anger, with our lust. We are a mess. And God hates that. You see, in God's economy, sin requires payment, but it's a payment that you can't afford, and one that I can't afford. But that's why Jesus came, to actually pay that debt for you. That's why the cross is so, so bloody. It's a little picture for how costly your sin and my sin actually is. So on that Friday, before the Sunday that Jesus rose, Jesus is torn to pieces to pay for our sin, and then he's laid to rest in a little tomb on the side of a hill in the garden. And if the payment that we incurred, if that payment for our sin was enough to bankrupt Jesus, to keep him in the grave, if his body stays there, if his heart doesn't begin to beat again, and if his blood never begins to flow again, and if his lungs don't fill with oxygen again, we'd all be doomed forever to pay ourselves for the offenses against our creator. And so all of us, our collective attention ought to be riveted to Jesus's dead, stinking, cold, discolored body laying in that tomb. But if the pulse does quicken, and if the blood does begin to pump, and if the body does rise, then we can know we can know that our Redeemer lives and we don't have to pay for our crimes because Jesus paid it all. So see it in your mind's eye right now. Go, go to that place. Go to Golgotha. See Jesus' beaten, bruised, and lifeless body. And then see it being laid in that tomb, in that, in that garden. His lifeless body lying on a cold slab in a dark, earthy grave in the side of that hill. See it. His memory and legacy are fading already. But then, early on Sunday morning, that first Easter morning, hear these words from a song that was pumping really loudly in our house this morning. You can read it on your paper. On that first Easter morning, his heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. And now everything has changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. He took one breath and he put death to death. So did Jesus exit the tomb as the resurrected Lord of life? Yes, he did. And we believe it at Trinity with all of our hearts. And we hope that you will believe it with us. The empty tomb, after all of these years, is more influential than ever. It refuses to leave the stage of the world attention. Look seriously today at the vacant grave and ponder the angel's words. 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. Look, I know that Christianity makes some startling and gigantic claims. But can I encourage you today to not leave them unexamined? You're not leaving, you're not leaving a, a lottery ticket unscratched on your dining room table right now. You're going to scratch that thing and try to find out if you want anything. So investigate the claims of Jesus. If you are ever going to close the deal with Jesus, surely today is that day. Today is your day to receive this grace with the empty hands of faith. Maybe you're waiting until you've gotten yourself straightened out a little bit. Then you'll investigate the whole Jesus thing. Don't wait until you're straightened out. You will never make it. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. None of us here are straightened out. None of us here have arrived. There is not one deed that you can confess that Christ's blood can't cover. It's that powerful. So don't wait, non-Christian friend. Believe. Christian friends, just briefly, I hope your faith has been sturdied up today. The resurrection is real. What you believe is not a lie. Jesus is alive. And he's coming back. You can be confident in this. Beyond this, though, two things. You can see it on your sheet. Don't outgrow the gospel. The depth to which you appreciate the gospel is directly correlated to your sense of need for the gospel. If you haven't sinned big, grace won't be big. But let me tell you, friends, we've all sinned big. From the greatest of us to the least of us, from the youngest to the oldest, we have sinned big. We all need a big God with a big cross that has triumphed in a big way over our two biggest problems, sin and death. We need a big gospel, and we have been given it in our Christ. It was Thomas Watson who said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Don't outgrow your need for the gospel. And second and lastly, don't lose your awe of the gospel. God loves you because of what he's like not because of what you're like. Hear that again, Christian. God loves you because of what he's like, not because of what you're like. God loved us despite us, not because of us. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. Don't forget the immense love shown to you in the gospel. You are more sinful than you know, friend, but you are more loved. You are more loved than you could ever imagine. Don't let the awe of God's love for you be lost on you today. Christians, non-Christians, it's a fact. Jesus rose from the dead. In Trinity, Jesus' resurrection changes everything for everyone. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming, for dying the death we deserved, for rising triumphantly over the grave. We love you because you first loved us. I pray now as we enjoy this this picture of baptism that you will help us to see and savor Jesus in a new and special way. Amen.